It's good to see you all, and it's good to be with you. Thank you for your prayers, uh, for me, for our family, and for many others who aren't feeling well at this time or, or battling serious sickness. But it's good to be with you, and we will be looking this morning uh, at Exodus chapters 33 and 34. And so if you'd like to follow along, uh, it can be found on pages 73 and 74 in the Pew Bible. You'll also find the text that we'll be looking at um, printed in the order of worship on pages 7 and 8. We've been spending some time working through the book of Exodus, and we've had a few um, breaks along the way. We took a break about six weeks ago for Advent and for Christmas. A lot has happened in the story, and it's important to make sure we have that in our minds. We left off at really a low point in the story. And in fact, it's one of the lowest points in the entire Old Testament. God had rescued his people with a mighty arm from the Egyptians He brought them to Sinai, where he entered into covenant with them. At the ratification of the covenant, Israel's leaders got to go up on the mountain and eat a meal in his presence, and the text tells us that they saw God. And then God called Moses up again, and he gave him plans for the tabernacle, plans of how he would dwell with his people. But then the people grew anxious during Moses' absence. They convinced Aaron to build a golden calf or a golden bull. And in doing so, they broke God's law. And really, they rejected God's covenant with them. And it's really hard to overestimate the devastation that these actions caused. How low this point really was in Israel's history. We get a vivid portrayal of what happened when Moses came down the mountain and smashed the two tablets, those fresh copies of the new covenant. He smashed them at the foot of the mountain because God's relationship with his people, the people he had heard, the people he had seen, the people he had rescued, it was over almost before it even started. And so an overarching image for us of where we are in Exodus is these shattered tablets at the foot of the mountain. But there's also another image that comes alongside that, and it is of intercession. It's of Moses pleading with the Lord on behalf of the people. Immediately when he's up on the mountain and, and heard from the Lord what had happened, He pled with the Lord not to destroy the people. And then once he came down and he dealt with the situation and he saw the atrocities of what had taken place, he sought to make atonement for the people, saying that if the Lord won't forgive their sins, then blot his name out of the book as well. Take his life as well. And where we left the story at the beginning of chapter 33 The Lord had agreed not to give the people what they deserved and wipe them out, but instead he would send his angel ahead of them to bring them into the land, but he can't be among them in this broken covenant context, and so his presence would not go with them. And the people were told to take off their jewelry for the rest of the journey. And it's a vivid picture, a vivid portrayal 
of how through their disobedience they had plundered themselves of the Lord's blessing and relationship with them. Kind of a downer of a way to start a sermon, I guess. Uh, But the good news is the story is not over. And we have much to see and much to learn today about Moses' intercession and also about the Lord's response. And as we look at our passage this morning, one of the most amazing things is that we will see truly good news for people who fail. We will see truly good news for people who sin and disobey. We'll see truly good news for people like us. And so we will walk through the text um, in that order, looking at Moses' intercession and then looking at the Lord's revelation. But before we look at it more thoroughly, let's pray and ask our God's help. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in all kinds of situations with various needs, and we're comforted by the fact that you know them all. You know exactly the pride that needs to be humbled within us. You know the sin that needs to be revealed. You know the fears that need to be comforted. You know the strength that needs to be given and the encouragement that we need. We pray that you would meet us here today, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, by your spirit, that we would see your glory the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we do, we would be transformed even more into his image. We ask for you to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll begin as we walk through the text by looking, first of all, at Moses' intercession. Moses' intercession. The scene switches from these shattered tablets and self-plundered people to this glimmer of hope as we come to verses 7 through 11 of chapter 33. And there we learn that God was still present and he was still making himself known. Notice with me Exodus 33, starting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. We'll we'll stop there and consider these words together. We find right away there's debate about how this particular section is worded. And really the the question is, is this something that had been ongoing while the people were there at Sinai, or is this a new situation? I tend to think this was an ongoing thing, but either way, what it's showing us is that even now, 
on this side of a broken covenant, the Lord could still be sought through the tent of meeting. Now it's a far cry from what God had intended and what he had revealed to Moses on the mountain. Did you notice how much it emphasizes the distance that's present? It says that this is outside the camp. It's far off. You have to go out to it. And so while it's hopeful, while it's still gracious on the Lord's part, it's a far cry from the Lord being with them, among them as, his, uh, as their God in the tabernacle. You see, because of their sin, we see the starkness of this distance between God and the people. But it not only shows the the distance that's there as God still is present, but it also shows us Moses' privileged status continues. If you remember, Moses wasn't involved in the golden calf incident. And we find these amazing words there in verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. These words could be confusing to us because a little bit later we'll read that the Lord will say he cannot see his face and live. But it's helpful to understand that speaking face-to-face with someone, is a, it's a way of saying speaking person-to-person. It doesn't mean that Moses actually beheld the full face of God, but that the Lord spoke with him person-to-person without necessarily seeing his face, perhaps as it was shielded by the tent itself. And so what we find is God is in relationship with Israel still in a way. He's distant with the people. It's not what it was intended to be, but he's still showing favor to Moses. And that sets the stage for this petition that follows in verses 12 and 13. We pick up in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people." So Moses approaches the Lord with a bit of a logistical question for him. That's how he starts. You've said to me, bring up this people. You've said you will send an angel before us, but who will go with me is what Moses wants to know. And based on his favor with the Lord, the Lord knows him by name. He has found favor in the Lord's sight. Moses asks to further understand the Lord's ways so that he can continue to walk in that favor. But at the end is really where he puts in his main point of what he's getting at. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Isn't it amazing that it's not enough for Moses to have this favored status? It's not enough that the Lord knows Moses' name. He wants the people to experience this, too. And the Lord answers him by giving him the information he asked for. In verse 14, he assures him of his presence. It says, And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's great news. (laughs) As we're progressing in the story, this is amazing. The Lord will go with Moses, and he will bring him into the promised rest. 
But did you notice the ambiguity that's built into the Lord's response? The you that's there is actually singular. And we're not really sure what the Lord is saying here. Is he just saying that he'll go with Moses? Or is he speaking collectively, he'll go with you, meaning Moses and the people? Will he just give Moses rest? Or is he going to give the people rest? We're not really sure. And so in light of this favorable response, Moses leans in, as it were. He presses in to ensure that God's presence will not only be with him, but that his presence will also be with the people. Notice verses 15 and 16. And he said to him, this is Moses speaking, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Notice he begins by building on what the Lord has promised. That's so great that you will go with me. Your presence is exactly what I need. But then he essentially says, but if you won't go with me, we can't go. (laughs) We need to stay at Sinai where your presence is. And you notice how skillfully he brings it back to the people. Your presence is what we need. Isn't your presence what shows your favor upon me and upon us? Isn't it what all the other nations are to see and to know is that you are present with us? In fact, isn't your presence the very thing that makes us distinct as your people? Moses really here now has built to his main request. He wants the Lord to go with them and with all of them. And really, if we stop and think about what's happened in in light of the entire story, Moses is asking that God retake them to himself as his unique and favored people. And Moses amazingly receives the answer he is looking for in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. The Lord makes it clear that this is not because the people somehow deserve to be taken back. But he circles back to actually where the whole petition started. It's because of Moses' favor with God. And his persistent intercession has secured Yahweh's promise to go with the people again. That's great news. This is really, we're starting to come up out of the darkness here. But then notice Moses makes one more request in verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Moses' request here was respectful. He says, please, please show me. He understands the position he's in and what he's asking. And his request here is very bold. He's asking for further revelation of God to him. What a change from his initial fear. Remember Moses back in chapter 3? God appears to him in the burning bush and what happens? Moses hides his face from God's presence. Here he's asking out of a heartfelt cry for an experience of God's presence to prepare him for what lies ahead. Do you remember the roller coaster that Moses has been on in the book of Exodus? 
he was in Egypt, then out to Midian because things didn't go well, and then back to Egypt, and then the Lord brings the people out and through the Red Sea, brought to Sinai, covenant made with God, 40 days up on the mountain, getting the plans for the most amazing thing to enter human history since the Garden of Eden, heaven essentially coming down to earth in the tabernacle, only to come down the mountain to find it all burning down and to find that the tablets, then like smashing the tablets, the covenant broken, and then the roller coaster he's been on as he's been interacting with God about the state of the people, moving from the Lord, giving the people what they deserve, but then graciously continuing with Moses to them being sent without God in his presence to now coming to the point where the Lord has agreed that it's back on and he will go with Moses and the people. And in light of all that experience of failure and of grace, his cry is, please show me your glory. And the Lord is not appalled or offended by this request at all. And look how wondrously the Lord responds to Moses' request. We've been looking at Moses' intercession. That's really point one. Now we're moving into point two, the Lord's revelation. The Lord's revelation. We find this as we resume in verse 19. This is the Lord's response. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were written on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord's response here is really one of the most climactic revelations of himself in the Old Testament. And it can be easy to come to a text like this and to just rub our hands together in excitement of all that we can glean from it in a systematic way about the name of God and his attributes and what it means to see his face. But it's crucial, even as we do and even as those things are true, It's crucial that we don't lose sight of the context of when and where this is taking place. Because the context this is in is what makes God's revelation all the more amazing and what makes it such good news to all of us. There are two things about the context to note. The first is that it happens in a post-fall context. 
The Lord reminds Moses right away of the inherent danger in the situation. In verse 20, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. This is something that as a result of the fall can no longer take place. Ever since the garden, God's presence has posed a danger to humans because of his holiness. And even with the intimacy that Moses has with the Lord, there's a need for distance between him. And it's reaffirmed here. And only Moses can come up. And you have to keep all the people away. And all the animals have to stay away. We're we're starting over in this thing. But it's this post-fall context where God's presence is dangerous. And secondly, it happens in a broken covenant context. The Lord instructed Moses to bring two tablets again. (laughs) Why? Because the other ones were shattered. That covenant is over. And they're laying there at the foot of the mountain where the people rebelled. Later, the prophets will speak of the golden calf incident as Israel committing adultery on her wedding night. That's how grave of a relational shattering has taken place. And it's in that context of failure, it's in that context of shattered relationship that the Lord reveals himself to Moses in this way. And in his revelation, he addresses really both of those things. First, we see that the Lord's protection addresses Moses' fallen context. God orchestrates the situation to protect Moses from the danger of his presence. There on the mountain, he will direct Moses to a cleft that will provide him physical protection. And not only will he direct him to a safe place, but notice he will personally protect him with his hand, covering him until he has passed by. And only once it is safe will he take away his hand. And even though a direct visual encounter with the Lord's glory would be too much for Moses at this point, the Lord will graciously honor that request to some extent. After the Lord has passed by, Moses shall see his back, but his face shall not be seen. The emphasis here is on how little Moses actually is able to see at this point. That distance still has to be maintained. You don't see a lot of a person as they're walking away from you, but it is still an encounter with them. And even if it is just his back, even if it is just the after effects of the glory of God passing by, Moses will see his glory. But although the Lord can't reveal too much to Moses visually, he'll do something even more. He will proclaim his name to him. He will come and personally reveal to him more of who he is. And if his protection is what addresses that fallen context, we find that his proclamation of his name is really what lays the foundation for the covenant context of what's taking place. The Lord's proclamation addresses this covenant context. And notice what the Lord proclaims as we continue on in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The text says that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. It's a way of saying that the Lord made himself present to Moses. This wasn't just a dream or some disembodied experience, but the Lord showed up. And as he passed by, as he said he would, he proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord. And it's very possible that that saying it twice is a sign of endearment with Moses. Just like Jesus would say to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, my dear Simon. It's, there's this intimacy and emphasis on the name of the Lord. And by proclaiming his name, he's revealing more of himself. And he's revealing who he is really at the core of his being. Do you notice what he says? His name is. He is a God who is merciful. Can also be translated compassionate. He is a God who genuinely cares about humans. He has a tender attitude of concern and mercy toward them. He's a God who is gracious. That means he gives favor to those who don't deserve it. He gives beyond what is deserved. He's patient, especially in the face of wrong. That's what, that's what patience needs to show itself. Especially with people who fail, he's patient with them. And he's abounding, he's overflowing in two things. The first, steadfast love. He's overflowing in covenant love. He overflows in loving loyalty. He is the best at long-term promised love to people. And he's abounding in faithfulness or he's abounding in truth. He is reliable and he is able to be trusted in everything more than anyone else. And so when he proclaims his name, he kind of rattles off, in a sense, these five glorious attributes, but then he also goes on to describe his actions, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He maintains his promised faithful love for thousands, and it could be thousands of people emphasizing the breadth. It could be thousands of generations that gets picked up later in Scripture. But either way, it's a, a breadth and a length of love that's inexhaustible. And who is this love for? It's for people who need to be forgiven. And that's what he says, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. As we heard in our scripture reading, God is the only one who can pronounce ultimate forgiveness of sins because all sin is ultimately against God as our creator. 
But although those scribes had their theology right in knowing that God alone can forgive sins, they missed the heart of this text, didn't they? Forgiveness is a part of God's name. It flows from his very nature. And he uses three different terms to to show the totality of what his forgiveness encompasses. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. You see, forgiveness isn't something that God reluctantly does. It's something that he does as the forgiving one and he delights to do it. And yet at the same time, this abundance of love and forgiveness doesn't eclipse his justice. And I think those words there kind of stop us in our tracks about this God who will by no means clear the guilty. But think about it for a moment. Could we really trust God's goodness? Could we really trust his forgiveness if he's just a God who sweeps things under the rug? Because what happens when he no longer wants to sweep things under the rug? What happens when it's not our wrongs that he's sweeping under the rug, but it's wrongs that are done against us by very wicked people? What do we do then? And so actually this is a very comforting thing that the Lord reveals about himself. He goes on in verse 7 to say, He is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, I must confess, when I read that, what comes into my mind is a God who, in a situation where the father sins and he says, I know what I'll do. I'll keep punishing his innocent kid for a few generations, his children and grandchildren. But that's not what this way of speaking is conveying at all. And it's, it's sad, the image of God that that produces in our minds. Instead, what it's really saying is he continues to deal with evil and sin as long as it endures. The, the picture that's there is of a father committing a sin and being punished for that sin by God. And then the children of that father now saying, well, dad did that and it was dealt with. So I think we could do it. I think God will kind of tire out of dealing with that. That's been dealt with in a previous generation. So we could just continue in that way of sin. But instead it's saying, no, if they follow in that sin, he will continue to deal with it as well. It's a way of saying that God is perfectly just and righteous and that he truly deals with sin where it is found. But notice also the proportions. Keeping his love to thousands and dealing with that sin to the third and the fourth generation. The emphasis is definitely on the fact that to those who are penitent, to those who are seeking forgiveness, he abounds in inexhaustible committed love, and he abounds in forgiveness. And so how does Moses respond to this glorious revelation of God? Notice verses 8 and 9. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses quickly falls to the ground 
and worships in light of this revelation of God. But notice his concluding, clarifying request. (laughs) Lord, in light of all this, in light of who you are and have revealed yourself to be, please forgive us and resume your promise with us, these stiff-necked people, and make us your inheritance. I wonder how much time elapsed between what Moses said in verse 9 and what God says in verse 10. (laughs) Moses there, face to the ground, please be our God and take us back. But verse 10 surely comes, doesn't it? I don't know how long elapsed, but notice what happens. Behold, listen, look at what I'm doing, the Lord says. I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. To see what happens, the Lord responds by restoring the covenant. Did you bring those two tablets, Moses? I need them because I'm writing again what I wrote before. And now this time, on the other side of the golden calf incident, what God has always known and been agreeing to will now be on even fuller display. That these are a stiff-necked people, but they are a people who have received his grace. And he's going to do an awesome thing with them, a thing for all the world to see. He'll graciously take them back and covenant with them to be their God. And the text continues uh, in chapter 34. He reiterates the covenant. We'll look at how the story goes on uh, next week as we conclude our study in Exodus. But I want us to spend a few moments together considering what this passage teaches us about God. What is it that this passage teaches us about God? Who is he? And who is he not just in theory and not just when we're reading our theology books, but who is he in our failures and in our sin? Who is he when our threefold promises of obedience All that you have said I will do lies shattered at the foot of the mountain. Who is he when our fears and our uncertainties about the future have gotten the best of us? And despite our best intentions, we've turned again to idols for security, for comfort, for things just to be okay. You see, in this passage, God powerfully reveals himself to Moses and by extension to the people, and then also ultimately to us, so that we can know who he is in our failures, our setbacks, our sins. And he wants us to see and remember two things. The first, remember your intercessor. Remember your intercessor. Moses stands out amazingly in this section at being relentless 
at pursuing God's plan to dwell with his people. He's not satisfied with just enjoying these mountain glories himself, is he? He intercedes for the people. He approaches God on their behalf. He puts the people's needs above his own. He's willing to die that they might live. And the people rarely appreciate it as they should, but they have an amazing intercessor in Moses. Have you ever noticed how lonely it is when you fail? Have you ever noticed how lonely of a time it can feel like when you sin? You realize that you've let everything, everyone down? <laughs> Feels like it's all upon you to somehow try and make things right? We, we feel the lonely weight of the world when we find that we've failed God and others. And we could think, if only I had someone like Moses. If only I had someone up on the mountain pleading my case. If only I had someone who really cared about me and wanted my best. But do you realize as great as Moses' intercession is, it's just a glimpse of who Jesus is for you as a believer. From eternity, Jesus enjoyed heaven's glory, and yet he didn't cling to it, but he came down so that he could raise you up to experience that glory with him one day. Moses cared so much that he was willing to die for the people, but ultimately his life could not atone for them. But Jesus came and was willing to die and was able to make atonement as the Son of God. He has relentlessly pursued doing all that it takes to bring us to God. And you realize, brothers and sisters, this did not stop at the cross. He now, Hebrews 7.5 tells us, 7.25 tells us, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Brothers and sisters, in your failure, in your sin, know that you have an intercessor who's even greater than Moses. The Lord Jesus is truly on your side as your mediator, as your advocate, as your intercessor. And he's not pleading your case on a mountain. He's not pleading your case in a tent. He's pleading your case in heaven itself. And it will not stop. The author of Hebrews says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You realize that the Lord Jesus even now is by his spirit pouring out heaven's help, heaven's presence, heaven's power into your life in your weakness and your need. Because he is the intercessor who has gone before us as our great high priest. And as surely as he lives, you can know that he will do all that it takes to bring you to be with him and experience heaven's rest. So brothers and sisters, remember your intercessor when you feel alone in your failures and your sins. 
And as reassuring and as comforting as that is, this passage shows us even more. Because we could be tempted to see a passage like this. We could be tempted to read through the Old Testament in particular and think that this relentless pursuit of us is just something that's on Jesus' heart, but not something that God cares about. And we could read it and even think that that Jesus' intercession is somehow twisting God's arm to take us in when he doesn't really want to. But this passage tells us not only remember your intercessor, but remember God's revelation of himself. Remember his revelation of himself. He is a God who comes to us in our sin. The whole book of Exodus, the whole Bible, tells us of the lengths God is willing to go through to bring sinful people just like us into his presence to be with him. And in this text, did you notice the the great lengths that God will go through to draw near to Moses, even in Moses' weak and fallen state? He puts him in the cleft of a rock and he covers him with his hand and he shows him just enough that it won't consume him, but that he could safely experience his presence. Brothers and sisters, this is just a picture. This is just a glimpse of how relentlessly God has pursued you. He has made a way through the Lord Jesus that although we were far off because of our sin, we can now be so transformed by the work of Christ that God himself can actually come to us and indwell us by his spirit rather than us being destroyed by his presence. That's how great of a work God has done to come to us. But think of how that work happened. It was a costly work, wasn't it? It was far more costly than Moses' mountain encounter. You see, Moses was high up on a mountain, cradled in a rock, covered by God's very hand, experiencing nothing but the goodness of the glory of God passing by him. But the only way to make things right for us would be for the Lord Jesus to receive none of that protection. He was lifted up on a cross, hanging there fully exposed, suspended between heaven and earth, with no protective hand covering him, but nails driven into his hands as he was handed over to death. Moses experienced glorious moments of nothing but the splendor, the brightness, the glory of God's goodness. But our Lord Jesus endured hours of darkness and agony as God's holy wrath was poured out as he bore our curse. But when he cried out, it is finished. The triune God's plan was accomplished and a new covenant context came into being. And now by faith in Christ, we can be forever protected in the rock of Jesus Christ who was cleft for us, a place that shields us from all that could destroy us and a place where we experience nothing but the goodness, the favor, the blessing of God's face shining upon us.
And we don't have to guess why God would go through such great lengths to come to us because all of Scripture proclaims it. Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't re-enter the covenant with Israel because Moses somehow could argue his way into it or Moses somehow tricked him. He re-entered into that covenant because of his name. He re-entered into that covenant because of his character. And the new covenant has come to us because of his name. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of our failures, our sin, our weakness, hear his name, who he is as he proclaims it to us, that he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin because all of it has been dealt with in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we do in the face of a God like this? I think we do what Moses did. We fall on our face and we worship And Moses' requests there are actually pretty illuminating for us as well. We come to God seeking forgiveness again and again in repentance. We ask for his continued presence and help by his spirit. And we seek to then walk in obedience, not to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor. Not so he will somehow notice us, but because he knows our name. And they're graven on his hands. Not to obey to keep a covenant that can be broken, but to obey in a covenant that has already been kept. And so we wonder and we marvel at this awesome work that God is doing with stiff-necked people like you and me. And this is something that the whole watching world needs to see and needs to hear because it's a gracious, merciful God who invites sinners like us to himself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we realize our unworthiness to come into your presence. We marvel and wonder at your grace. We pray that you would help us to worship you as we ought, for our hearts to well up with thanksgiving, faith, with confidence in your love. Keep wrong thoughts of you and your heart toward us far from us. Help us to turn again and again to our Lord Jesus as our intercessor in our time of need. And help us to walk faithfully until our race is done and until one day we cross that Jordan. And as your word tells us, we will live with you forever in a place where there is no temple, because the whole world is temple, and we will see your face, and your name will be written on our foreheads forever. We don't even understand the wonder of what that is, but we pray that you would help us to walk faithfully until it comes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.